Okay, good morning, all of you. Let's uh, come to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that now you will speak to us through your word and by your spirit and teach us the meaning of love and help us to love one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, why can't we all just get along? Why can't people get along with one another? You see, we live in a world that is fractured by prejudice, exploitation, by war, by hatred. And it's not just a problem between countries, a problem between governments, it's also a problem between different communities in a country, it's a problem between different families in a community, and it's a problem even between different people in a family. See, ultimately, what is the problem? Why can't we get along? Well, the problem is because of us. It's not just you all out there, it's me. That's the problem. See, the problem is that we are all selfish people who look after ourselves first and put ourselves first. See, Albert Einstein once said this. He said, The real problem is in the hearts and minds of men. He said, It is easier to denature plutonium than to denounce the evil spirit of man. Now, this is the situation in the Corinthian church. They were people who were not getting along. See, in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, we read that you know, they were basically divided. They were, going up, they were split into different factions and groups and each one had a, had a figurehead, had a leader. And then in chapter 6, they were suing one another in court, dragging each other to court. In chapter 11, they were divided in their communion meals and you know, they, they were dividing people into the haves and the have-nots. And last week we looked at chapter 12 and we saw how some people were proud of their spiritual gifts and they looked down on those people who didn't have the same spiritual gifts as they did. Those people without those spectacular gifts like tongues, like speaking, in, uh, like speaking prophecy and doing miracles, they looked down on them, they thought they were inferior to them. They thought that they were, these people with those gifts were more spiritual, more special. And so Paul wrote chapters 12 to 14 to talk about this issue in the church. And last week, when we looked at chapter 12, we saw that um, all gifts are given by the Holy Spirit for the common good of the church, to build up the church. And then we also found that no one in the church is superior or inferior based on what gifts they have, but everyone is in one body in Christ and everyone is equally valuable and needed. But then we also found that we should use and seek the greater gifts for the building up of the church. Now this leads us now into chapter 13 today. Chapter 13. Very famous chapter in the Bible about love. All of us probably have, have seen it in a plaque or a bookmark or something like that. Okay, And it's often read at weddings. Now so why did uh, Paul, you know, in the middle of writing this um, thing about spiritual gifts, go and write a wedding poem for us? You know, did he get distracted? You know, uh, you know, he sort of got a bit disorganized with his thinking. Well, actually chapter 13 is not just a sort of unrelated topic of love. It is very, very integ- integrally related to chapters 12 and 14. See, love is part and parcel of this issue of spiritual gifts. And that's why we have chapter 13. So we need to understand how it fits in with the surrounding chapters. So let's look at the last verse of chapter 12 and the first verse of 
chapter 14, before we look at chapter 13. Okay, so uh, chapter 12, verse 31. But eagerly desire the greater gifts, and now I will show you the most excellent way. And in chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. See, at the end of chapter 12, Paul wants to tell the Corinthians about the greater gifts, to desire the greater gifts. And then we see that in in chapter 14, he goes back to this topic, he picks it up again. But what did he do in between that? Well, he was telling them about the most excellent way. He was telling them about the way of love. You see, this way is the way in which they should use all their spiritual gifts. And so before he focuses on the gifts, he wants to tell them how to use it. So if you think about a a surgeon who has the most uh, up-to-date precision instruments, okay, he has the latest range, top of the range tools, but he has no skill at all. Is he going to do you any good? His tools are completely useless, isn't it? Whatever the tools are, you need the skill to use them. And it's just like us with our spiritual gifts. Our spiritual gifts are like tools that God has given us to build the church. But if we don't use them in love, we're going to make a huge mess. And it's not going to do anyone any good. So what should we know about this way of love? Well, let's look now at chapter 13. Okay, We start from verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong, or a clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Now here we have four different examples of gifts. Tongues, prophecy, faith, giving. Okay, in each of these cases, Paul pushes the gift to the limit. He goes to the very extreme case. He describes the, the highest and the greatest form of this gift. So he says, if I can speak in human languages, no, if, even if I can speak in the languages of angels, see, is the gift of tongue pushed to the limits? Now, some people um, say that from this verse, uh, we know that some tongues are angelic languages, but I think just from one verse alone, it is difficult Uh, to tell for sure, uh, because we're not sure whether Paul is stating a real scenario or whether it's a hypothetical case, he's he's exaggerating and overstating the case to make his point. Because when we compare it with the other few verses, Paul is actually going to the extreme case. So let's look at the next one. Okay, if... Okay, uh, it says, if I have the gift of prophecy, and even if I can fathom all mysteries and knowledge... So obviously, we know that we can't fathom all mysteries and knowledge because it says so in verse 8. It says that we know in part, or verse 9, we know in part and we prophesy in part. But Paul is saying, even if you can do that, even if you know everything. So regardless of, you know, whatever speaking in tongues means, uh, speaking in tongues of angels, of men, that's not the main point here. The main point here is even if I can speak in tongues, and even if I can speak in the best, the highest form of tongues, angels' languages, but I do it without love, I might as well be a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, um, during Chinese New Year when I was young, I usually enjoyed watching those lion dancers with their clanging cymbals and resounding gongs. 
But imagine if a member of the dance, lion dance team moved next door to you, and for two months before the Chinese New Year, they were practicing every night, okay, at home, just uh, the drum player or just the cymbals clashing. Okay, do you think that would be music to your ears? No, that would be noise, isn't it? It wouldn't be enjoyable. And so in the same way, even if you can speak the tongues of angels in the most polished way, even if you can do that, but without love, you would just be like a resounding gong. You'd be making a lot of noise and you're not doing any good to anyone. It achieves nothing. And so if you can speak in you can speak prophecy and you can know all mysteries, all knowledge. You have the gift of prophecy on steroids. You know, your gift is so amazing that you know everything there is to know. Well, it does nothing. You are nothing if you do it without love. And if you have the gift of faith, to the extent that you can even move mountains by your faith, but you do it without love, then God says, you are nothing. Or if you have the gift of generosity, and you give everything that you can possibly give, you give all that you possess, you give yourself to the flames, you give everything. But if you don't do it out of love, then you still gain nothing from that. And from this we can see that the human heart is so deceitful. Sometimes we can do the best things, but for the wrong reasons, for the wrong motives. We can even sacrifice ourselves for the wrong motives. But God judges us not just by what we do, but by our motivations behind our actions. So if you give just to show you know, how generous you are so that everybody praises you, then you are not doing it out of love and you gain nothing. There'd be no reward, no benefit for yourself. So no matter how gifted you are, no matter how valuable your ministry is in the church, if you have the wrong motivations and you're not doing it for the love of your brothers and sisters, then all you're serving is for nothing. If you don't serve out of love, to build up, to meet people's needs, to serve them, then even if you're very brilliant, you're very able... It's all in vain. It's all a waste of time. It says here that you achieve nothing, you are nothing, you gain nothing. You see, without love, all our Bible study leading, all the church programs that we run will be for no use. They'll be meaningless and pointless and useless. Now, so verse 1 to 3 is about how love is the objective for all the gifts. The goal, the reason why we use our spiritual gifts. See, even the greatest gifts achieve nothing without love. But what is love? How do you define love? How do you describe love? See, our world constantly talks about love. And usually, the love we talk about is romantic love. See, romantic love has inspired countless love poems and love songs and paintings and so on. Now, I'm not really one to listen to love songs, uh, I must admit, but um, uh, for the sake of this sermon, I did a bit of research, okay? Um, and so some of you might recognize these lyrics. <coughs> You'll be the only one, because no one can deny this love I have inside. And I'll give it all to you, my love, my love, my love, my endless love. Recognize that? Maybe for the oldies, right? If you all recognize this song, you must be an oldie, okay, Lionel Richie, okay? But for the younger ones, I'm told that um, Miley Cyrus is a popular singer nowadays, even though I never heard of her before this, 
So uh, it's this song, I've got a way of knowing when something is right. I feel like I must have known you in another life because I felt this deep connection when you looked in my eyes. Now I can't wait to see you again. I've got this crazy feeling deep inside and it goes on and on. Okay. See, in all of these songs, love is described as an overpowering, intense feeling. See, that turns us upside down. It's a strong emotion in us that, that you know, makes us constantly think about somebody, makes us kind of want to be physically close to them, gives us a tingly feeling inside. But what is love in the Bible? The world says love is a feeling, a romantic feeling for somebody. Now, not that there's anything wrong with Romantic love is part of our makeup, it's how God made us, but there is a, a higher form of love that the Bible talks about. It's the kind of love that God has, the greatest form of love, and that is called agape love. That's the word in the Greek for this love. And this is the love described here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And see how God describes this love. Love is patient, verse 4. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, did you notice something about the description of love here? It doesn't mention any feelings. See, love here is described in what we do, in our actions. The highest form of love, agape love, is expressed primarily not in our emotions, but in our actions. See, it's not so much about what we feel, but what we do for people. You can't command yourself to feel something for somebody, because what you feel is usually outside your control. But then why does Paul command the Corinthians to love, to follow the way of love? Because love is defined not by feelings, but by actions. Now you may not be able to tell yourself to like somebody, to, to feel a certain way, but you can have a loving attitude to them, and you can have loving actions towards them. So Love is a frame of mind, a, a determination in our heart an outlook towards people that results in action. So how does love act towards people? Well, verse 4 says, Love is patient and love is kind. So what do you, what do, you do when people treat you bad and you know, they've hurt you, they've opposed you, they have looked down on you, they, or you just find them annoying and difficult to get on with? Well, if you love them, God says, be patient with them. Be kind to them, even if they snub you, even if they ignore you. See, you can't love somebody by keeping them at arm's length. Because if you keep them at a distance, how can you show them patience and kindness? How can you love them? And then he says, love does not envy, love does not boast, and it is not proud. So if a brother or sister in church is more accomplished than you are, or more able than you are, if everybody praises their ministry, then don't be envious. You should love that brother or sister. You should thank God for the gifts that have been given to that person to serve the church. 
or if God has given you abilities and gifts to serve the church and uh, you know, uh, people are drawn to you, they look up to you, well, don't be proud, don't be puffed up. Remember that you must use your gifts out of love, otherwise it's all just an empty show. Don't boast, don't be proud. Use your abilities and your gifts to encourage people and to serve them. Don't be resentful when people ask for your help. Be humble, have a servant heart. Verse 5 says, Love is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered. Now, sometimes we can uh, be very sensitive to what people say. Uh, we can be like porcupines. I don't know whether you've ever been to the zoo and see the porcupines, but when people say or do something to us, we all of a sudden bristle out and get really defensive. Okay, And we go into our defensive mode with all our prickly barbs sticking out. See, we can easily become rude and irritable and angry people. But love is more concerned about others than about ourselves. See, love can put up with other people and consider ourselves as less important, overlook their weaknesses and forgive the wrongs that they have done to us. That is love. Love keeps no record of wrongs, says next. Now we are all, uh, well, I think most of us are quite natural at holding grudges, uh, keeping a mental record of wrongs that people have done against us. So sometimes our grudges go back years and years and years. See, whenever we think about this person, or we talk about this person, it's always, do you realize what they did? You know, how can you, okay? And uh, sometimes when we get angry with that person, okay, uh, all the, all the things that have bottled up inside us over the years just spills out, right? You know, ten years ago you did this, and five years ago you did this, and uh, it all comes out, right? All the record of wrongs in us. Well, it's time for us to let it go, God says. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. It's time to forgive, and to forget, and to love. In verse 6, we read that love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Now, not delighting in evil can mean uh, one of several things. Firstly, it can mean not delighting in someone's evil deeds, not delighting when people do wrong things. See, if I love somebody, I will never rejoice when they go into sin and wrongdoing. See, a lot of um, our secular friends, they're only there to share good times with you. They'll cheer you on and egg you on to do all sorts of things. But when your money or your popularity has disappeared, they run far away. Because deep down, they're not interested in your good. They don't care what happens to you. They just want to have a good time. But a true friend, a friend who really loves you, is somebody who cares, who will point out your mistakes to you, even if you don't like to hear it, because they love you, because they're truly concerned for your good. Secondly, not delighting in evil can also mean not delighting in evil things happening to people. So, uh, love is not vengeful. Love is not spiteful. Love does not get a kick out of watching bad things happen to people that you don't like. And thirdly, uh, not delighting in evil can also mean not delighting in discussing other people's evil. See, I once was in a church where the members had a huge disagreement and split into two groups. And each side loved to discuss the wrongdoings of the other side. All the time, they're constantly talking about this. But love does not enjoy endlessly pointing out other people's wrongs and mistakes. Sometimes we have to do that for their good, but if 
if we are dragging people's mistakes out to talk about them and not to help them, that is not a loving thing to do. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Now this rejoicing with the truth, it can also mean several things. Firstly, rejoicing with the truth can mean rejoicing whenever somebody does what is true and right. So when they've repented of sin, when they've come to God to live a holy life before Him, this is what makes us truly happy. And rejoicing with the truth can also mean rejoicing in what is true. That is, if you love somebody, you'll always be interested in being honest and open with them. There's no room for us being insincere in love, for being pretending to love. And then in verse 7 it says, Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love always protects. Love is not into character assassination. Love is not into destroying people's reputation. But love is generous in protecting them even when they have done wrong to us. I was reading this book uh, written by D.A. Carson. This was a, a, a biography of his, uh, of his father. Okay, if you don't know who D.A. Carson is, he's a famous uh, speaker and writer of Christian uh, literature who's, by the way, coming to Singapore to speak next month, I think. But anyway, um, he was writing a biography about Tom Carson, his father, who was a pastor in Canada. And one time, a famous uh, principal of a Bible seminary there took offense at something his father said. Uh, I think it was, it was the truth that what he said, and it wasn't meant to uh, cause offense at all, but he took offense at something. And Tom's father had just happened to have moved to a new area to lead a new church that the Baptist denomination had agreed to uh, so, so give him money to buy a new building and all that. But then this man was quite influential in the Baptist denomination, so he decided to withhold all that money from him, even though they already signed the contract, they paid the deposit, everything. So uh, Tom's father had to go around asking for donations, he had to go take a personal loan, he didn't get his salary for months, just in order to buy this building that they had pledged to buy. But he never once said a bad word against this other man who did this. He didn't even tell his children about it. Until many, many years later when his son found out through other people and asked him about it. Now, that is a great example to me of somebody who, who loves and protects people, even those who oppose him and betray him. So if you find yourself in a group discussing some person's uh, you know, think rumors about somebody, gossip about somebody that's not true, then the most loving thing to do is not to participate, to abstain from that, to stick up for the person that is being discussed. Our love always trusts and always believes, it says. And that doesn't mean that if we love somebody, somehow we are so easily cheated, we're easily conned, we are naive and gullible people. No. To always trust means to always give the benefit of the doubt when we are not sure. It means not being too suspicious about people, but being generous in how we evaluate them as people. Not always thinking the worst of them, not always attributing evil motives to them. But if somebody has really lied to you again and again, what should we do then? Should we keep trusting them? Should we keep loving them? Well, I think that we have to be wise in our love, and we may need to make a distinction between believing somebody and believing 
in somebody. I think there is a difference. So if you if you believe in somebody, it means that you think the better of them. You know, or you you believe that they can change. They can become a better person. Then, in other words, you do not write them off. You do not abandon them and think that they are hopeless cases and move on somewhere else. But you persevere. You persist with them, hoping that they will change. It doesn't mean that you believe everything that they say necessarily, but you are you are still there for them for their good. You're there in them for the long haul. I think that's what always trusting and always hoping means. And always persevering. See, love does not give up on people. But instead, love can put up with anything. We can endure even when the person who we love returns good for evil. We do not return evil for evil to them, but we give them only what is good. Love is willing to endure and make ourselves vulnerable even. So how should we sum up this description of love in verses 4 to 7? What is the common factor in all of these things, all of these qualities? Well, I think the common factor is love puts other people first. Love is other-focused, not self-focused. Love is other-centered and not self-centered. See, most of us live for ourselves. We focus on ourselves. We take others into account only when it suits us or only when we like it and definitely we will find it very hard to accept other people when it comes at huge cost to ourselves. And we complain when people are not there for us but we hardly ever think of being there for other people. We're too busy with our own lives, our own needs, our own burdens. But love means having the attitude it doesn't matter so much what happens to me I care more about you, about the other person, about acting for their good. See, real love is denying ourselves and even sacrificing ourselves for the other's sake. That is the love of the Bible. Now, if love means focusing on other people's good, then we, we cannot insist on how important we are because of the spiritual gifts that we have. See, the Corinthians thought that spiritual gifts were more important than people. Paul says that spiritual gifts are meaningless without love. Because the point of the spiritual gifts is given to you in order that you may love people. So verse 8 onwards. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. See here, there is another reason for why the spiritual gifts are not as important as love. Because spiritual gifts have an expiry date. Whatever it is, whether it's prophecy or tongues or knowledge, all these gifts one day will be swept away and no longer needed. See, all of these gifts bring us a degree of knowledge but it says here that no matter how great your gift of knowledge, your gift of prophecy, 
The fact is that what you know and what you prophesy is still incomplete knowledge. And only when Jesus comes again to bring us to heaven will we have full and complete knowledge. We will have all the knowledge that God wants to give us. And when that time comes, all the gifts that we thought were so important, so wonderful, will only be like children's toys to us. Throw away. See, this side of heaven, the knowledge that we have is like a child's knowledge compared to an adult's knowledge. This side of heaven, the knowledge that we have is like looking into a dim mirror compared to seeing face to face. See, the greatest gift that we have now will still pale into insignificance when we compare it to what we will have in heaven. And when we get to heaven, we will cast all these gifts aside, all the tongues, all the prophecies, all the knowledge, because then we'll have the real thing. See, we'll give up what is imperfect for what is perfect. But love is different. It says that love never fails. Love will endure forever. See, the rest of eternity is about living out lives of love. Therefore, we should now put our effort into training ourselves in love, practicing how to love, and growing in our love for other people. See, we won't need spiritual gifts in heaven, but we will need love forever in heaven. In fact, out of all the most important Christian qualities, love is still the greatest one of all. So it says in verse 13, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So it's not just that love, it's not only love that will endure into eternity. It says these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love are the three essential qualities, virtues of being a Christian that will survive into eternity. But out of these three things, love is still the greatest one. You can't be a Christian without faith, without hope, or without love. Faith is what makes us Christian. Hope is what keeps us Christian. But love is simply being a Christian. You see, faith and hope themselves are not end points. They are just means to an end. See, the ultimate goal of life is not to have faith. and The ultimate goal of life is not to have hope. But these things lead to the ultimate goal of life, which is to have love. See, God made us and saved us so that we can love. Love defines who we are as people. Love is at the very core, the very essence of who we are, of our being. It's the reason why God made us. It's the reason for us existing. And it's the reason for all our eternal existence in the future. See, in eternity, we will become like God. The Bible says that God is love. See, love is what defines God. The Bible never says God is faith. The Bible never says God is hope. God does not need to have faith in anyone. God does not need to have hope in anyone. But God is love. Love is at the very core of his being. Love defines who he is. And we too will be like God in eternity. We will love. So love is the reason for our existence. So to put it in a nutshell, love is the purpose of all the spiritual gifts. Love means acting in the interest of others. And love is greater than all the spiritual gifts because the gifts are only temporary necessities, but love is the eternal goal of our existence. 
How do we apply all this? Talk is cheap. And action speaks louder than words. Obviously, the application is simple. It is love one another. We are all one body in Christ. We've all been given different gifts and abilities to build one another up. So in our meetings, in our Bible studies, our services, let us use our spiritual gifts to love and to achieve the good of others. So whether you are a leader or a participant in any of those groups, make sure that you're not belittling people, you're not embarrassing them or running them down, but you're acting in love. Love means getting rid of pride. Love means forgetting ourselves and being other-centered. Now, it's no credit to you if you say that you only love some people because everybody loves some people and everyone loves those who love them in return. In Matthew, I'll show you, Matthew uh, chapter 5, Jesus said these words, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. If you only love those who love you, then you are no better than the unbelievers. Don't they love their friends and their loved ones too? Even the murderers do that. It's not hard to love people who are pleasant and likable and lovable. But not many of us choose to love people who are grumpy and difficult to get along with, right? We don't even want to be near them, let alone love them. But God commands that we love the unlovely and the unlovable. God commands that we love even our enemies. God's definition of love is loving those that you don't like, loving those who have offended you, who have hurt you, even if they keep wronging you. Now you might think, oh, this is, this is totally impossible. I can't possibly love in this way. It's just too hard. Well, listen, God hasn't told us to do anything that He hasn't done Himself. In Philippians 2, God says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Think of the person that you find hardest to love, the hardest to forgive. No doubt they've done terrible things to you. Then think of how much you owe complete obedience and loyalty to God. But you instead insulted him, you instead sinned against him and rebelled against him and offended him to his face. And think about what this God did. Do you know what he did? He came down to earth as a man to die for your sins. Jesus Christ came, took the punishment for your sins so that he could bring you back to God. So that he could forgive you. Now he did not care for himself. He did not think to himself, why should I have to 
come down from heaven, give up my majestic glory, so that I can come to earth and be a mere man. He didn't think, I come down to earth, nobody will recognize that I'm God. Everybody will mock me and persecute me and even kill me at the end. And who am I doing it for? I'm just doing it for this bunch of people who have done nothing to deserve it. Think of what a great sacrifice it was for God to forgive you. And because God has forgiven us in this way, we must also forgive one another in the same way. It's not we could forgive one another, it is we must. It is not optional, it's compulsory. Let's look at Matthew 18. Next. Okay, I didn't put the whole passage here, it's very long. Uh, Matthew 18, there's a parable that Jesus told about how a king forgave his servant uh, 10,000 talents, which in today's terms is about billions of dollars. Okay. This man owed the king billions of dollars and the king forgave it all. And then he walked out and he saw his fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii, which is about maybe $10,000 in today's terms. Okay, that's still a lot of money, but it's nothing compared to billions of dollars. Okay? And he refused to forgive this man $10,000. And the king heard about it and he threw this man back in prison. And the last verse ends like this. This is how my heavenly father would treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. See, when someone sins against us, maybe we think it's very generous for me to forgive you, you know. I forgive you once, it's already very good. Uh, if you do it again, and I forgive you again, I think, you know, you've got a lucky draw to, today. You know, I'm, I deserve a medal for forgiving you. But if you do it a third time, that's my limit. You know, no more chances after that. I've given you enough chances. I can't possibly forgive you again. But Jesus says, we must forgive 70 times 7. That's in the Matthew passage as well, if you look it up later in your own time. Jesus says that there is no limit to the amount of times we must love and forgive. We must not keep score. Why? Why? Because God loves us in exactly the same way. See, in the parable that we read, that is how God has forgiven us. He has forgiven us billions of dollars and we are only required to forgive $10,000. Is that so hard? So if we do not forgive, God says that He will not forgive us either. Now some people say, I can forgive, yes, but I cannot forget. But is that really forgiving? Well, think of how God forgives us our sins. In Isaiah 43, there is a verse which says, I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Now, of course, God does not literally forget what we have done. And in the same way, we can't erase our memories you know, so that we have, we have no idea what's happened in the past. But what does forget mean? It means no longer bringing up the past as though it were relevant anymore. It means no longer recalling it to mind, no longer allowing what happened back then to affect our present. Forgetting means acting as though it never happened. Forgetting means no longer feeling that they still owe me something. You see, it, forgetting means not bearing any resentment anymore to that person, even if the hurt that they've caused you is so great that the scar of that remains. So if you have a broken relationship with anyone, if you have a broken relationship with anyone in church, God is calling you to love them by forgiving them, putting the past behind you, and being reconciled to them. And what if 
you know, you haven't got any broken relationship with anyone, well, you're still not off the hook. God requires you to love, to watch out for ways that you can love one another in church. Now, in the Bible study group that I went to this week, one of the questions that we asked was, how can we become a more loving church? And I got this answer more than once. This answer was that sometimes in our church, we can be too comfortably huddled together in our cliques, in our groups that have been formed over the years. And the newcomers find it very difficult to feel welcome. We can talk to them superficially, but we do not integrate them into our lives. So, we need to step out of our comfort zones. We need to not just mingle with our friends, but make an effort to genuinely be interested in other people's lives. Reach out to other people. How can you love people that you don't really know? And if you don't talk to them, how can you know them? See, if you are a newcomer, you too have a responsibility. It's not just up to the regular members. You also have a responsibility to love. You have a responsibility also to make an effort to get to know people because you are also commanded to love them. Now, I started by saying, why don't we all just get along in this world? Ultimately, it's because we are all selfish people who are preoccupied with ourselves. We are proud people who want our own way. So how can people be brought together into a perfect society? What are the world's answers? The world says, oh, how about music? You know, let's all just sing, heal the world together. Okay, but music's not going to bring people together. Or maybe sport. We'll just organize lots of Olympic games and that will bring the world together. No, it's not going to bring the world together, I'm afraid. Not even communism or socialism or capitalism or any political isms are going to bring us together as people. The problem is we are selfish, sinful people. But God has a solution to that problem. And God's solution is the church, the people of God. See, the church, the people of God, are people who have had radical heart surgery and been transformed by God's Spirit so that we are able to love and forget ourselves. And so, we must be so different from this world that when people look at us, they see a glimpse of the perfect society of heaven. See, our church, BTPC, should be a foretaste of heaven. And so let us love one another. Let us deny ourselves and put others first. Let's pray for God's help. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing love to us, that you would give your precious Son to us, who were your bitterest enemies, to die for us, to rescue us from sin. And thank you that in Christ we have been made a new creation and our hearts have been circumcised to obey you and to love other people. Forgive us for the many times when we have failed to love and failed to forgive. And even now we may still be failing. Please forgive us. And please give us the strength to love in action and not just in words those people who wrong us and who oppose us. 
and help us use our gifts in love to serve one another. Please make us a community of love so that we may be a light to the world around us, pointing people to heaven until we see you face to face. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.